sort of worship, there's a little sheet that goes along with my sermon tonight, so I want to make sure you all have it as we talk about the resurrection. A couple of announcements. First thing is, right after service tonight, we are going to have a celebration dinner. We're going to break bread together just like the early church. We worship Christ, we love each other, and we're going to break bread together. So you can just go out these doors right over to the fellowship hall. Uh, they've got... Uh, They've been smoking hams since last night. Ryan Bonilla has been smoking hams. And he's also got, for those allergic to pork, he's got a couple chickens. So uh, excited to eat that dinner. So we welcome you to join us for that. Also, uh, the bold trip is coming up quickly. And if you haven't seen the video yet, here it is. There it is. There we go. Ken! Yeah? It must be dinner time. Hey, I just opened the mail. We got an invitation for Debbie's baby shower. And it's on April 17th. And it's a couple shower, so that means you can come too. Hey, babe. On the weekend of April 17th, my sisters and some of our friends, we want to go on this really big shopping spree. There's a huge sale. And we were hoping that you could be our chauffeur for the day. What do you think? Hey Dave, are you available on the 17th of April? Um, yeah, okay. yeah, I'm available. Cool. Wait. The girls and I have something really fun that we want to do with you. We're going to go to a princess tea party, and there's going to be lots of glitter and makeup, pink fluffy things, and cute little sandwiches. You're going to love it. Oh, okay. Um, all right, I'm, I'm going. Yes. Um, excited. Seventeenth is great. Seventeenth is awesome. All right. Now, um, just uh, Dave, maybe check behind the monitor and see if that I plugged that audio cable back in all the way. Sorry about the sound. I, I think I may have broke it. Uh, but that's what pastors do best. We break things, and then somebody else has to come behind us and fix them. So, no. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so uh, we want to invite you to the Bold Trip. If, um, if you'd like to come to that, you can register at calvaryot.com. That's calvaryot.com. And uh, there you can pay. It's $75 for anyone over the age of 16. Uh, 16 and up, it's $75. And it's a great time, so we hope you'll join us out there for that. All the forms that you need. Uh, the event release for Schroeder Ranch, and also if you bring along a, a child, uh, the release forms are up there on calvaryot.com.
All right, with that said, normally we have a, a testimony time, but this Sunday we're not doing that. Uh, this Sunday we're doing something a little different. So if you will, open up your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 24 and verse 1. Luke chapter 24 and verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Verse 3, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed, as and as they were, were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day? Rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Pray with me, would you? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much. God, for giving us your word. Lord, we thank you that you had the perfect plan for our salvation. Right now, God, as we study your word, as we open it up, we ask, Lord, that you'd bless it. God, we pray that it would uh, bear fruit in us, that we'd have hearts ready to receive it and hands ready to do it. Lord, we just give you praise and thanks for this time. We give you thanks of, for the hope of the resurrection we have in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I'll tell you, if it weren't for that morning, that first Sunday morning, tonight's service would probably start out a little bit like this. Welcome, and thank you for joining us as we gather in special memory of Jesus, the son of Joseph, who passed away last Friday. He was 30 years old, and, or 33 years old, and, and uh, very proud of the fact that he made it that far. We want to join with the family in sharing the grief of their loss, the loss of their, their son, their, their, their one unique son compared to the rest. And we also want to loss, mourn the loss of a dear friend who loved others, who healed others, and had miraculous power. It hurts very much to lose someone, you know, even after that person has enjoyed Years on this earth, it still hurts to say goodbye. That's how this service would be starting. More with a memorial service and less with a celebration. But praise God that that tomb was empty and we get to come here and celebrate. You know, the world has always been plagued by looking at the grave. I remember uh, it was probably a year or so ago, no, about two years ago, I did a memorial service and it was one of the sad ones. It was a memorial service for someone who died in their 30s and they were a young mother and, and uh, they died from cancer and it was an untimely death. 
And uh, I just remember at that memorial service, everybody was groping for answers. Everybody wanted to know, where is the hope in this? It was such a sad memorial service. In fact, one person got up and started kind of during the sharing time, just kind of grasping at straws, just, I hope I can find some sort of meaning to all this life. And you know what? He's not alone. In all of history, we see that uh, authors, philosophers, theologians have all studied this idea of death, and they all come to different conclusions. Macbeth, in in Shakespeare's uh, tragedy, Macbeth, Macbeth speaking about death, being inevitable says this, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have lighted fools. The way to dusty death, out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. Man, so depressing. Macbeth is saying, in a sense, that ultimately our lives are meaningless because the grave is holding us captive. We cannot get away from that grave. And that's all we are moving towards. What is the point of life if all we have to move towards is a grave? Something that's at the end. In uh, his other play, Hamlet, uh, Hamlet says this in the famous to be or not to be speech. To be or not to be. Now you and I are familiar with that, but hopefully you're familiar with the fact that the whole question is about existence. Is it better to exist and live or is it better to die? And that's what Hamlet is dealing with in this part of the play. And he says, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing in them to die, to sleep, no more, and by sleep to say we end? The heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation. Devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream, Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come? When we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. Hamlet was basically saying, man, I, I think it's better to die. Because if I die, maybe, maybe I'll just sleep. Maybe I'll dream. But the question is, what dreams come? What comes after the grave? What do we have waiting for us? And therein lies the rub. Do we just toil? Do we fight these battles? Do we persevere through life and all of its troubles? But then we don't know what comes at death. And that's the, the plaguing part about death. That's where the question comes in, whether it's better to be alive or to die. And Hamlet says, you know what? The reason why we stay alive is because we have no idea what death holds. Well, praise God, we have one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Jesus Christ. That's right, amen to that. Jesus Christ answers these questions of death. All these questions that even to this day, some of us ask, 
Is the grave better? What happens at the grave? Well, I want you to know you can know for sure. And as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'll tell you, people always find this funny when I answer this. I actually like doing memorial services and funerals better than weddings. I know, that's weird, right? But it's not because there's someone dead in the room. It's because it is at death that everybody is thinking about that awful black hole called the grave. It is at death that we are all going, I am so small and I need some sort of hope. And it is at death that a minister of the gospel can bring the most light and comfort because we have a God who would not stay dead. We have a God that rose from the dead. That is Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you tonight. Maybe you came in here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you've asked those same questions about death. Maybe you're just here to celebrate our risen Lord. And we're going to talk about a lot of things tonight. But here's the one thing I want you to know. In Jesus, you will find the answer to life's ultimate questions. The answers that no other religion in the world can give you. And it's all found, remarkably, in an empty tomb. A vacant tomb is where those answers are found. Notice on the first day, as the women go to, to, to take the spices and, and further uh, prepare the body, this is kind of funny to us. We don't understand why they were doing this. And it seems a little bit like, wait, I, maybe there's a mess up in the gospel narrative here because... Uh, I thought they sealed the tomb. I thought they were guarded. Why would they be going back? How could they open up this tomb? And I want you to realize, for the Jews, and remember, the early Christians, they were Jews. Okay? They weren't this new group of people. They didn't say, hey, we're starting out to become a new religion. That was never the case. They were Jews. And they saw Jesus as the fulfillment of their faith and their religion. And so, seeing Jesus crucified on that cross... Man, that looked like all hope was gone. In fact, that's one of the reasons why they never understood, although Jesus said it, and you and I look at it and say, see, he said it here, he said it here, he said it here in the Gospels. How come the disciples were so dull that they didn't pick up on this? How come they, they didn't do it? In fact, even in Matthew, in Matthew's account, it says that the, the Jewish priests went to Pilate and said, hey, listen, we're afraid that the disciples may come steal the body because this Jesus said that he would die, and then three days later he would raise up again. So we're wondering if you can put an extra guard there and seal the tomb. And so Pilate said, yeah, sure, okay, we'll do that. So he allowed the, the priest to put the guard that was given to the temple uh, on that tomb and seal it. And so, but the disciples just didn't get this because they, they believed in a resurrection, but they thought the resurrection was coming at the end of time. That at the end, uh, we're, we're all in the grave, so we prep the bones, we prep the body until the decay happens. We keep putting spices on it. Then once it's all rotted, then we'll go back with our boxes called the ossuaries. We'll collect the bones, we'll put it in the box, and it'll stay there until the resurrection. At the end of time, God will raise up the dead, and that's when we'll get to see our Lord again. That's what they were thinking. That's what they were going to the tomb with. And they weren't going to the tomb to see if what had happened had happened. In fact, as they're walking to the tomb, one of the questions that they ask themselves, not in Luke, but in Matthew, is, I wonder who will roll, open the, roll away the stone for us. They were kind of hoping to stumble upon somebody that could do this for them. But instead, they find an open tomb. 
they find a, the stone rolled away, and they go inside, and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And they were perplexed about this, the text says. And behold, and Luke tells us there were two men there. Matthew and John talk about one angel. Now, there's a question here, and people say, well, look, there's an error in the Bible. And here's what I want to tell you. The Bible is true in all that it affirms. There was one angel there. There was also two angels there. Matthew and John just draw attention to the one angel and Mark. They just draw attention to that one angel probably that spoke. Here in, in Luke, Luke tells us that there were two angels there. And then we have the one who spoke. They stood in dazzling apparel and as they were frightened and bowed their faces, the women, the, the men said, why do you seek the living among the dead? You know, that's a great question for you and I to all ask. Are you doing that? Do you seek the living among the dead? Do you seek out answers about life from dead people? Or from, from yourself who's headed to the grave? I've always, it's always been intriguing to me about how we try to look to ourselves for answers about life's most plaguing questions. We try to look to ourselves knowing that knowing the, the, the amount of screw-up that we will bring to any given situation. Uh, the... the the, the fact that we are flawed beings, knowing that we can't fix everything in life, but yet we'll turn to ourselves and say, well, self, what do you think I should do about this? Or, or we'll go to a friend. What do you think we should do about this? Have you ever noticed about the other religions of the world? Who do they look to for answers? Dead people. They look to dead people. Why do we look to the dead for the living? And this is a great question. Of course, in the context of this question, the, the angels are saying, hey, God spoke it. He will surely do it. Whether you believe it or not. Why do you look for the living among the dead? God spoke it. He will do it. Whether you believe it or not. Do you understand that? That if God says He will do something, He will do it. Saying, well, I didn't want to believe it doesn't help you. Well, I knew I was going to die, and I knew the Bible said something about judgment, but I just didn't want to believe it, Jesus. I didn't want to believe it. Well, guess what? If God spoke it, He will do it, and He will judge every sinner. And you and I are sinners, and we will not be able to stand at the judgment, the psalmist tells us. In fact, we will be taken out by that judgment. And that's where the gospel message comes in. God provides a way. He is not here. He has risen. Amen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? I love how the angel's like, he told you guys this. He why weren't you guys listening? You and I do the same thing, right? We, how many times do we have to hear the gospel message? Or how many times do we have to be reminded to do certain things or, or to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our strength, with all of our mind? Me, it's like an everyday thing. I always got to remind myself. And that's part of the, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9, when, when um, God instructs Israelites, the Israelites to say this uh, when they rise and when they, when they sit write this on the doorpost of their house, put it on the frontlets uh, uh, before their eyes, mark it on their hands so that they can remember the Lord God. Because you know what? We have a terrible memory. We have a terrible memory as human beings. And we keep looking to ourselves. We keep looking to our culture. We look to other people. And it starts affecting our memory. And, and so the angels remind them, hey, he told you this. Remember in Galilee? And I'm sure for the women it was like clicking, like, 
whoa, wait, wait a minute. It was that aha moment. It was the, the and sorry, I think it's long enough now that I don't have to spoil this. It's that moment when, when you're, wa- <laughs> you're watching um, the, oh man, the seventh, uh, Oh, I don't remember the movie name now all of a sudden. The, 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 the movie where, where the kid's seeing dead people and you realize like, Bruce, six cents, thank you. <laughs> it's, a, it's that moment when you realize, oh, Bruce Willis is dead. He's been dead this whole time. <laughs> you know, it's that aha moment. And, uh, and th- that's what the moment is here. The women are, t- wait a minute, hold on. And, and the angels uh, let them know this. That He said that, that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. Rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told them these things to the apostles. Here's something I want you to realize. For a first century Jew to write this down, this account, this is probably one of the most embarrassing things a first century Jewish man could write. Now, obviously, Luke was a Gentile. But for, for a Jewish, we, we believe that Luke interviewed the eyewitnesses and interviewed Peter. He, he was interviewing them. And, and for, him to, for Peter to say, for the other disciples to also say that it was the women who found the tomb first, this is an embarrassing thing. Now, you and I don't see it as embarrassing because we, we've, we've, uh, we, we have a totally different view on life. But women were not considered reliable witnesses. So in a court case, if a woman testified that somebody did something, that, oh, well, please, you're a woman. <laughs> Do you realize that? <laughs> you, in fact, if you read the Gnostic Gospels, which I don't recommend because they're pretty lame, you know, you know, um, they are. It's like a lot of these things when you read them that are extra biblical or cultish, you just go, oh my goodness, this is awful. I just want to throw up all over this book. Um, it's so boring. Anyway, but um, the Gnostic Gospels, which a while back ago when the Da Vinci Code came out, the Gospel of Thomas was huge, and they were talking about, everybody was about the Gospel of Thomas, this Gnostic Gospel. And I, but people didn't realize that the Gnostic Gospel actually was Saying that, you know, hey, guess what? If you're a really good woman, then you'll get to turn into a man in heaven. Right? <laughs> yeah. So I found it so funny that everybody was, was, was getting so popular. It's like, this is a terrible gospel. It's a false gospel. And it teaches false things. It's interesting, by the way, though, I want you to realize this. The Gnostic Gospels, and I'll just I'll point this out and you can bring it up to me later. Both the Quran and the Book of Mormon quote things about Jesus' life from the Gnostic Gospels. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So I think there's a, 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 a main character, a main player there at work behind all those religions. Absolutely. It's an enemy who wants to lead you astray. And so this is an embarrassing fact. Now, I gave you in your book a couple of facts, uh, the 12 known historical facts concerning the resurrection events. And this is really important because when you and I talk about the resurrection, there's a bit of, well, there's a lot of impossibility that comes with it, isn't there? When we say that uh, someone rose from the dead, I mean, you and I have never ever witnessed that, right? We've never seen somebody raised up from the dead. Uh, of course, Apollos had, and he shared about what he saw uh, a couple of months ago, or back in February. 
But we haven't seen this. We, we haven't seen people come back from the dead. So there's a, there's a bit of an impossibility here. Actually, we would say that rising from the dead is very impossible. Okay? But let's look at the facts for a minute. Jesus died by crucifixion. That's a core fact. That Jesus died. And we can attest to his resurrection because the Gospels, narratives, not only those, but also there are 17 other extra biblical sources that talk about Jesus' death and his res- 11 of them talk about the resurrection. So we're talking about extra biblical sources, historical ser- sources that we're writing about the history of the Jews like Josephus. And they, they mention Jesus of Nazareth and they mention what he was doing. They mention his death. They mention his resurrection. And and so we know that Jesus died by crucifixion. We know that the, the setting concerning the crucifixion is an accurate setting. You know, for years they said that, oh, well, they didn't crucify people with nails, so the Bible's wrong. Christians, you're so simple-minded. Please. One, people don't raise from the dead. But forget that. Let's look at this whole nailing people to the cross thing. They didn't do that. Well, they found a heel bone with a nail through it in an ossuary box. And they said, oh, wow. And turns out it happened to be from the first century in Palestine. And they're like, hey, you know what? I guess they did nail people to the cross. You simple-minded Christians were right because you believe in a Bible that is right. So Jesus died by crucifixion. We know that the, the Roman crucif- uh, his crucifiers were good at what they did. His Roman executioners were great at what they did. We read about how they stuck the spear in his side and blood and water flooded. We read that they were surprised that he was dead. But he was dead nonetheless. We know that from the Scriptures that he was buried. Well, maybe, maybe we don't know where he was buried. No. Joseph of Arimathea, who the Jews knew, who everybody knew, who they put his name in the account, said he had a new tomb, a tomb that was unused yet. And he asked for the body from Pilate. They gave it to him. They took him down off the cross. And then they went. Not just one person took the body, but a group of them went. They prepared the body, and they put it into the tomb. Now, where were the disciples at this time? They were gone. They were hiding for their lives. They were, they were on the run, so to speak. We know that the tomb was discovered to be empty just a few days later. That's a fact. So, so what are our, our facts so far? That he died. That he was buried. And that his burial tomb was empty a few days later. So those are some core facts there. We, we know that the disciples had experiences which they believed were literal appearances of the risen Jesus. That's what we know that. We know that the disciples truly believed that they saw. Now, we could say, well, maybe they were just hallucinating, right? I mean, maybe they just ate some bad fish one night, and they were like, whoa, I think I see Jesus, right? Maybe, maybe they were hallucinating. But, but the fact stands, nonetheless, that Jesus had post-mortem appearances to the disciples, and they believed it to be true. And, and here's why. We see that this is the message of the center of the preaching in the early church. This fact that Jesus appeared. This is one of the center messages. This is the, the message that all of Christendom is built around is that post, those post-mortem appearances in that empty tomb. Uh, number, fact number eight, this message was especially proclaimed in Jerusalem where Jesus died and was buried shortly before. 
Number nine, as a result of this preaching, the church was born and grew. Number ten, Sunday became the primary day of worship. Number eleven, James, who had been a skeptic, was converted to the faith when he also believed he saw the resurrected Jesus. And then number 12, a few years later, Paul was also converted by an experience which he likewise believed to be an appearance of the risen Jesus. So these are 12 known facts, and you can check them. So what we're left to do is say, what is the best explanation that Jesus really did indeed rise from the tomb? Okay? Now, we're not just saying, well, guys, hey, we don't have much evidence for this, so just believe it. You know, let's, hey, listen, you just, just pray. If you feel something going on inside of you, you'll know it's true. No, Christianity isn't left with that. Our faith is built upon substance. Substance happens to be an empty tomb. But we have these facts. In fact, turn with me over to 1 Corinthians 15 for a minute. 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll start in verse 3. Let me explain what's happening here before we read it. Paul is correcting the Corinthian church. Some have crept in there, and they've started saying that there's no resurrection. That, that after death comes, there's no resurrection. It's just kind of an nihilism idea. And, and Paul is correcting this, saying, this is crazy. That you're, this is crazy talk. Stop it. And this is what he says. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So first thing I want you to realize is that these are not Paul's words. Paul is saying, when I first came to Corinthians, Corinth, sorry, not to, to the Corinthians, at Corinth, I delivered to you what I also received. By the way, Dave, could you turn up the air a little bit? It's a little warm in here. Thank you. For those of you listening to the recording, we just asked the sound man to turn up the air. <laughs> I'm just kidding. For... <laughs> For I delivered to you what I had received. Now, let me just talk about this for a moment. Paul went to Corinth very early. We're not talking um, way late. In fact, the Gospels we know were written later than the earliest epistles. We know that they came along a little bit later. But Paul is saying when he first showed up at Corinth, this is what he told them because he himself had received this message. Here's what the message is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So the first point is that Christ died for our sins. His righteousness for our unrighteousness. It's a good trade. I'll tell you right now. And by the way, if you haven't made that trade yet, I want to challenge you tonight to trade your unrighteousness, all of your shortcomings, all the things you've done right, wrong in life, everything. You trade it for His righteousness because He wants to give it to you. But you've got to surrender. So Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried. That's what we were talking about in our facts. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So what Paul is saying here is that, hey, he received this. And by the way, this is kind of interesting that Paul uses the term Cephas here. And, and here's why. This is a little bit of a nerdy thing, but I'm going to give it to you and you can do with it what you want. But I get excited about this sort of stuff. Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter, not the Hebrew name. 
Cephas would be showing that this, this saying that Paul is receiving, that he's, he's writing to the Corinthian church in, in Greek, is saying that he's basically translating this saying, this creed, from Aramaic to Greek. So what's the big deal with translating something from one language to the other? Well, here's the big deal. The big deal is in Jerusalem, in Palestine, in Israel, they spoke Aramaic in the first century. That was the main language that they spoke. Greek was a secondary trade language, Koine Greek. And then, of course, they also uh, had Hebrew as well. But Aramaic was the main language. And remember, Jesus said on that cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in Aramaic? And so what, what we're seeing here is that Paul did indeed receive this from someone else very early on, and he received it in Aramaic. So he's just translating, and he uses the term Cephas, that Aramaic name for Peter. But more important than the, the translation issue, Paul is saying, hey, you know what? He appeared to Peter. He appeared to tw- the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Hey, if you're curious about this, go ask them. How awesome is that? If, if you're curious, he appeared to all these people, most of these guys are still alive, go ask them. Here's what the story is. You can talk to them yourself. There were no shortages of eyewitnesses about the post-mortem appearances of Jesus Christ, these resurrection appearances. Last of all, he, as one untimely born, he, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But... By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is, also, uh, that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Go Skip with me to verse 20 real fast. I don't think I put this up there. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Paul gives us this early creed saying, hey, I learned this, that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead. Then he appeared to all these people, last of all to me. And as Paul's saying this, you can hear the regret in his voice. Paul's not boasting about this. Paul's saying is, man, I'm not worthy of this. I, I persecuted the church of Christ. I've, I've done bad. I was there while they were stoning Stephen. I was egging them on. They were laying their coats at my feet. And I was saying, murder this guy. He's a heretic. He's going against God. I was the one who went for the, the warrants to put on doors so that we could search people. We, I had that open to, we can kick down doors and get the Christians out of here. 
I'm one of the ones that instigated the whole persecution in Jerusalem of the Christians. Those early martyrs of the faith. I am not worthy. But you know what? Jesus said I was. Jesus appeared to me. Jesus called me. You know what? No matter how unworthy you think you are of being part of this wonderful resurrection, I want you to know that if Paul, who, as he refers to himself as the worst of sinners, was welcomed into the Christian faith, was welcomed into Christ, so are you. So are you. And you know what? Not only are you welcomed in, but you're also welcome to participate in a resurrection yourself. That's what the promise of this is. We know that Jesus rose from the dead. He's the first fruits of the dead. And then you and I too will receive resurrection bodies. Now, Paul in his, uh, this passage here in Corinthians makes sure that we know that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, this whole faith thing, this church service tonight, it's a waste of time. You know what's sad? There are many churches today that have gone away from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They, they've, they've turned it into, you know, I think it was a spiritual resurrection. And you, why have they done it? I'll tell you why. They choose not to believe. Or maybe they choose to do the simpler belief. Maybe they want to go with the culture. <laughs> Don't do that. Stick to the, the Word of God because it is accurate and it is truthful and it will not lead you astray. It's so sad to see that like the Corinthian church, these churches today go away from the truth of the resurrection. I'll tell you right now, if there's no resurrection, I'm not going to put all this time into what I do. It's too much work. If you guys know me, you know I, I'm like always doing stuff. Um, and uh, and <laughs> I work hard. I labor because I know that my labor is not in vain. It's for the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's worth it every time. But, man, if he did not die, it's total in vain. You see, we have these facts, though, and we still have to answer these facts. Why were the disciples so transformed? Why was Peter, who was on the run at one point, all of a sudden willing to go to jail and happy about it? Why was he singing songs in jail and rejoicing, knowing he was going to his death before Jesus, uh, that, that angel pulled him out of prison and allowed him to escape? No, see, the resurrection did happen and it transformed these lives. On the other side of this paper, I have a little uh, chart here. And by the way, I got this paper from Craig Hazen, um, just so you know, and I, I put a little note there in the bottom of the one side so you know. But here's a little flow chart. And it says the tomb of Jesus was either occupied or empty. And then it goes down and it gives you all the different scenarios or, or ideas. So the first one would be the unknown tomb. Well, the problem with the unknown tomb is facts 4 through 12 disagree with the fact that the tomb was accidentally unknown. They're like, oh, we went to the wrong tomb or we're not sure where the tomb is. No, the high priest knew where the tomb was. Pilate knew where the tomb was. The guards knew where the tomb was. The disciples knew where the tomb was. The women knew where the tomb was. They didn't just go to the, uh, the unknown tomb or the wrong tomb. Uh, another thing that, that people talk about was it was a legend. When you watch the History Channel or sometimes National Geographic, this is what they talk about all the time. Oh, well, you know, legend developed. Legend doesn't develop in the epicenter of where it as is. In fact, if it was a legend, me personally, I would be one of those people that would be like, oh, so Jesus rose from the dead? Right, come on, let's go over there. Open up the tomb. There he is. He's right there dead. 
See, this didn't start in Rome. It didn't start in Corinth. It started in Jerusalem. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in all of Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. That's where the resurrection account goes. Uh, another example is a twin. Jesus had a twin. That, that, uh, see, this whole time there was a hidden twin there that, uh, that J- Jesus had. We, no one knew about, but he was, he was a twin. And so, so he went to his death, and then, and then all of a sudden the twin pops out and says, Hey, everybody, come follow me. You know? By the way, have you noticed what the early church went through in their foundations? It wasn't like, uh, yes, I'm a cult leader and we're making money, we're raking in the dough, living the high life. It was, I'm going to die. I very well could be set on fire, be, be crucified. I could be boiled in oil. There's all sorts of deaths that they've got waiting for us. Beheaded. Stoned. Then a hallucination. Remember I talked about the bad fish one night? The problem is facts 5 through 12 disagree with that. That it was an existential resurrection. This is what many in the Episcopal Church have turned to. An existential resurrection that, oh, you know, it's more about what it means for us. That, that, that we too can rise above. That we can be resurrected. No. It, there, we believe in a physical resurrection and there's 4 through 12. Um, I'm going to skip over to the other side. The disciples stole the body. That's a good one. These cowards who ran away, they're like, hey, we should go steal the body and face some Roman centurions. Yeah. <laughs> no. In fact, we see where Peter is in the Gospel of John. We see Peter is back to fishing, and he's bummed. Peter is just torn up about what he has done. In fact, when, when Peter hears the news of the resurrected Christ, we see in, in uh, Luke here, Look at who gets up and runs. Look at, look at it. It says that, um, <clears throat> oh, I lost my place. Um, here we go. But Peter rose, verse 12, and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And John in his gospel lets us know that he actually beat Peter to the tomb in the race. He's faster, um, which is pretty funny. But, but it says that Peter got up and ran. Man, Peter wanted more than anything to know Jesus and to be with him again. Peter loved Jesus so much. The problem was his, his faith was so weak, and he knew it. And the thought of Jesus rising from the dead, man, I'm going to get there and check it out. And, and we see that Peter went back to fishing. So the disciples clearly didn't steal the body. The authorities hit the body. That's another one. It goes against facts 5 through 12. Uh, the swoon theory. This is, this is a great theory. Okay, uh, before I talk about the swoon theory, let me just tell you what it is. Jesus, first of all, we know was, was beat. He was lashed 39 times with a cat of nine tails. We know that his skin would have been shredded at that point. He was, tor- he was you know, mocked. He was uh, beat up over and over. And, you know, the Gospels tell us that they put, they put a bag over his head and punched him. Man, that would be awful. They, they, uh, then they crucify him. They stab a spear through his side. They pull down the body, and turns out he wasn't really dead. He just swooned dead. We, we thought he was dead, so we wrapped him up in all these embalming spices. Nobody took care of wounds or stopped bleeding or anything like that. We just wrapped him up in spices. We put him in the tomb. By the way, those spices and those linens would have weighed somewhere around 90 pounds. So a guy who's been suffocating on a cross now has 90 pounds on him. And he just kind of woke back up and was like, oh, 
Hey, I'm not dead. Let me break out of these linens and walk out of the tomb. Oh, and by the way, I've got to push a stone out of the way. I've got to beat up some Roman guards. And then I'm good to go. That's the swoon theory. And so that goes against facts one, one and six. And then the Passover plot, that this plot was initiated, that we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna convince people that Jesus is risen from the dead. And obviously, obviously facts five through 12 go against that. And then here's another theory that, that there are no facts, facts to explain. Jesus was actually an alien. Okay? So Jesus came from another planet. He did his Jesus thing. And then at the point when, when everybody thought he was dead, he just decided to go back home to his planet. Or we can say that he raised from the dead. And we can look at the explanations that have the most explanatory scope. And honestly, the explanations that have the most explanatory scope is either he was an alien or he did indeed rise from the dead. And me personally, all the facts say that he did indeed rise from the dead. Let me just ask you this real fast in closing. When Peter was back to fishing, Jesus, he hadn't seen Jesus yet. And he goes back to fishing. He's, you know Peter, he's probably wrecked. And he's probably thinking, I don't know if you've ever done something to someone and you know you, you messed this up. And, and emotionally you're, man, I wish I knew what to say. I wish I could talk to you. But this is embarrassing. Jesus shows up and he's making some fish and he calls to Peter. He tells Peter to cast his net onto the other side of the boat. And, and Peter does it and starts pulling up all these fish and immediately he realizes who that is on the shore. And now being Peter, he doesn't just row the boat back. He jumps out of the boat and starts swimming. Totally reminds me of that scene from Forrest Gump when... when <laughs> When Lieutenant Dan is on the pier and Forrest is on the boat, he's like, Lieutenant Dan! And he jumps off the boat and just swims and the boat just goes and crashes. Peter just jumps off the boat. He's so excited. He gets to the beach and he sees Jesus. And then the awkwardness sets in. Hey. Because he knew that Jesus said, you're going to deny me. And he knew what Jesus taught. If you deny the Son of Man, I'll deny you before my Father. Man, that awkwardness. Oh, hey. Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, you know that I love you, Lord. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Okay. Peter, do you love me? You know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me more than these? Lord, why are you asking me this? You know that I love you. And then he goes on to tell Peter that, hey, you know what? You're not only going to take care of my sheep, but you're going to die for me. And we see an instant transformation in the life of Peter. I want to challenge you tonight. Are you ready to run to that empty tomb? Are you ready to run to the Lord and take part in all the goodness that he has for you? Are you ready to receive what he has because you know what? It changed Peter's life. And I can't wait to meet Peter in heaven someday. I can't wait to, or, or the new heavens and the new earth, and just be like, okay, so you got to tell me. you got to let me in on this stuff. But, man, we have a God who is all about restoration. A God who takes the sinner and restores him to life. We have a God of hope. 
And I'll tell you right now, I don't know of any other world religion that offers this kind of hope. The world offers says like, hey, do better. Or the world offers says do these things. But the problem is we still have the guilty conscience. Nothing cleans our conscience. Christianity says, hey, that's wrong. That's sin. And God is not okay with it. And we go, but that's not fair. But Christianity doesn't stop there. It says, here's what God has done for you, and He will transform you. He will take that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh if you'll only let Him. Heavenly Father, we thank You, dear God. We thank You, we thank You, we thank You that we can depend upon the One who depends upon no one. Lord Jesus, we thank You that death could not hold You. The grave had no captivity over You. But you conquered the grave. And you know what? While we're praying, if there's anyone in here tonight that has been living for themselves, they've, they've been doing it their own way, in their own futility, I want to encourage you. You run after that empty tomb. Just pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I need you in my life. I, I want to turn from my sin. Lord, please give me your righteousness for my unrighteousness. Thank you for dying on that cross for me. And thank you for giving me the hope of the resurrection. Lord God, you are so good to us. How many times we fall and how many times, Lord, you will restore us. We love you, Jesus. Help us to walk after you and seek after you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.